Good morning, Sanctuary. Are you not delighted that we're part of a community that is engaging and caring for people in practical ways? I am so thrilled that we engage in things like this uh, pill-packing party, which was basically a drug party at Sanctuary. But, uh, you know, we, we raised money and purchased uh, at, at very um, reduced rates from pharmaceuticals the kinds of medications that diabetics and different folks need. Uh, and we're taking into place that some of those people have never even been seen by a physician. We have a team of physicians and nurses and different individuals that are going. We do this every year. I think it's awesome. I think God is smiling. Yay, you guys, for being a part of that. Secondly, um, as you're aware, Preston and Ashley are going to be blitzing out in about two weeks. They're going to be starting a community in Nashville called uh, Sacrament. And uh, we're a part of what they're doing. We're excited for them. We've been praying for them. Uh, I'm going to ask some of you, we're supporting as a community, we're supporting them through the end of the year. Uh, But I'm going to ask some of you to join Gail and I and uh, do something every month for the next 12 months to kind of help them out. So be thinking about that. We'll be asking for you to participate with us sometime uh, on the last weekend that they're here, uh, two weeks from now. uh, And Preston will be sharing that weekend. So please be coming. 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a scripture with you, grab it. If you have a a phone that carries the Bible in it, grab it. Or you just want to look on the screen, you can look on the screen. We are accommodating the diligent all the way to the lazy. <laughs> now, just so you know, I'm one of the lazy, so don't feel bad about it. <laughs> First Peter chapter 1, interesting text. It's a letter written by Peter, and it starts out in chapter 1 and verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. This is Peter focusing on and communicating to the church. And he's going to be talking to us as the people of God about how we can influence the world around us. He starts out in verse 3 of this chapter by kind of giving us the way in which we are set up to affect the world. And he says in verse 3, praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's engaged with us. He's invested in us. He has given us new birth into a living hope. It's a beautiful phrase. He's giving us new birth. We've been born again born into a living hope. I love the word hope. It implies the notion that things can be different, that they don't have to stay the way they are. That, and it's a living hope. It's, it's something that's, that's got energy to it. It's, and, and, and this notion of hope also carries, I love old Roberts used to say, uh, something good is going to happen to you. It's a very hopeful comment. And I think that on some level, when we're engaging with the person of God, we have this sense something good is coming because God is good. And, and, and you juxtapose that idea over against the idea like that appears in Deuteronomy 28 when the people of God are in disobedience and disconnecting with God. They're not receiving what he's giving. And it says that in verse 66 of that chapter, it says that you'd wake up in the morning and wish it were night. You'd come into the night and wish it were morning and there'd be this dread all over you. You'll despise life. There's so many people that despise their lives. You don't have to. You have come to this place where God is giving you something. It's new birth into a living hope. And it's all based on not how good you are, not how wonderful you are. In fact, I hate to be disappointing to you if this is disappointing to you, but God's not all that impressed with you. (laughs) Right? And you don't get what you earn from God. You don't 
want what you've earned from God. But what would, what's the basis of this hope, he says, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's saying, listen, God has vested in you. He has, he has, he has taken everything that's negative, everything that's wrong, everything that's broken, Jesus came, the creator becoming the created, and took into himself all the brokenness of the creation. And he took sin, which led to death, and he takes it into the grave. And on the other side of the grave, he comes out of it, which means you can come out of stuff. (laughs) This is the living hope. If Jesus took all that's evil and all that's wrong, it doesn't matter how wrong things have gotten for you. That's why the psalmist says, so beautiful in Psalm 139, he says, even if I make my bed in hell, do you ever feel like you made your bed in hell? He says, even if I dwell on the remotest part of the sea, he says, even if the light around me is so dark, it is darkness itself. Even there, your hand grabs me. Oh my gosh. You're never beyond hope. A living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he goes on to say, Peter goes on in his text as he's, he's articulating this. He, he basically comes to this conclusion. Because God has vested in you. Because God has touched you. Because God has given this to you. There's going to be a response. It, it's just as natural as... It, it, it's, it's, it's like a, a reflex. Like when the doctor hits that place in your knee and your knee goes... Your, or your leg goes like that. Your leg kicks out. It's a reflex. That reflex, unless there's a pathology... A neurological pathology, your reflex is just reflex, right? Somebody gets close to your eye, your eye blinks. It's a reflex. He's saying God's investment in you. The reflex is, he describes in verse 14, is you're obedient. You become these obedient children that don't conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, watch, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. What he's saying is, say, listen, if you really hear what's happened, if, you really, if this really captures you, and you don't try to grasp it, but you let it grasp you, it will cause you to have a reaction where you will live holy. If you're not living holy, it's because you have a pathology in you. you want to guess what that is? It's sin. But when you know God has invested in you and you bring your sin to him and just say, here it is, all of a sudden you're healthy again and you can start living holy. Holiness is not the result of human effort. It's the result of God's activity. So if you're not holy, don't, be, don't feel bad. Well, you should feel bad because you're, you know, you're bad. <laughs> but everybody's bad. You know, you're, you're not alone in your badness, right? But what you do is you say, God, I'm bad. This is the best I do. And in coming to him, what happens is that as he washes you, all of a sudden your reflex kicks back in. The pathology leaves and you are, as he describes down here in verse 1 of chapter 2, rid yourselves from all the pathology, the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, the slander. Why? So that you can live holy. There's a reason why you need to live holy, he's going to tell us. He says, like newborn babies... Crave the story, the milk of the story. Crave the pure spiritual milk so that by it, knowing Jesus has invested in you, that he's taken everything that's wrong and that you can trust in him, you'll grow up into your salvation. Then you'll taste that the Lord is good. That's what he says. And then the next part of the verse, he says, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, chosen by God, precious to him, you also like living stones. He all of a sudden goes from the individual experience of a person crossing the threshold of faith and being made new, born, being 
born anew into a living hope. And he talks about it plurally. He says, you don't do this alone. There's a corporate side to this thing called faith. This is very opaque to we modern Americans, usually. That faith has a corporate dimension to it that's as real as our private dimension. And that somehow when we get around each other, something happens. It's not unlike driving down the... the um, turnpike or something have you ever noticed when you're driving down a turnpike or down a street and you look in your mirror you look ahead of you and you see a policeman what's the first thing you do check your speed see every time i run into you i check my speed there's something about being around other people that love god that just helps you there's a power there's a strength and so he says we're like these living stones together we're being built into this spiritual house a god house and, and there's God stuff going on inside the God house. We become these, this priesthood. We're offering these kind of spiritual sacrifices within the God house. And then he says, as a result of all this activity, not only privately but corporately, it says in verse 9, we're this chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. But watch. Not just so that we can be happy and just have a fun time ourselves, independent from the rest of the world, but he says so that we might declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. See, what, what Peter is saying is, you don't just come into this for yourself. You come into this and you experience his grace and you experience his holiness and you're being built into this God house so that you can declare to people who are outside of faith that there is a God and that there's hope for them. There's, there's a reason. We have a responsibility, an obligation to others outside of faith. And so he goes on, once you guys were not a people, but now you're in. Once you had not received mercy, but now you, you won the lotto, man. You've got the mercy, right? He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Why does he call us that? Because when you walk with God and you live holy, you're going to look weird. You're not just responding the way everyone else is responding in the cultures in which we live. And so we look like foreigners and exiles, like from a different culture. But he says, make sure you abstain from sinful desires. Don't let the pathology come in or you won't be holy. Which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans. The pagans. The pagans. Who are the pagans? The pagans are the people that don't glorify God. The pagans are the people that don't give thanks to God. The pagans are the people that have a completely wrong narrative about life. They don't get What's really going on? They'll say, things are good in my life because of karma. Things are good in my life because, you know, I worked hard for them to be good. They don't understand the top, our texts like Acts 14, when Paul is talking to the pagans and he had done this amazing miracle by the hands of, with God's power. And, and when he had done it, everybody, they, 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 were, they were influenced by pagan Greek mythology. And they thought that the gods had descended and that Paul, the apostle Paul, was the Greek god Hermes. And so they're bringing animals to sacrifice to him. And Paul's going, guys, stop it. You know, I'm not Hermes, right? I'm just a dude, you know, like you. He tears his shirt and says, I've got flesh and blood. And then when he talks to them, he says, listen. He says, you need to understand what God is like. And he, he says this to them. He says, uh, can you jump down to the Acts 14 text? He tells them, he says, God has not left himself without testimony in your lives. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven, crops in their seasons. He's provided you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with what? But what he's saying is God's deeply vested in the lives of human beings. And that the, the th even the things that make people happy, that don't even know God, it's not just themselves, it's not just karma, it's actually God. I, I used to think, 
when I ran into happy people that weren't Christians is that somehow they had a counterfeit devil happy. <laughs> I'm serious. When I was younger, I used to think, or when I ran into a married couple that was happy and I find out they weren't a Christian, I think, well, they must have, you know, maybe the devil has like a counterfeit marriage happy. Not understanding, God has invested in everyone simple joys, falling in love, holding a baby, having a harvest. Then on some level, God just loves people. Jesus said, God is reckless. He sends sunshine on the just and the unjust. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And, and Jesus said, this kind of recklessness, this kind of incautious celebration of human life is when we do that to people and we're kind to people who aren't kind back to us or we're, we're, we say hi to people that don't, won't say hi back to us. In other words, we engage with people that we'd rather not engage with, those that the better we get to know, the more we like our dogs. <laughs> when we actually move toward people like that, we're actually, he said, you're most like your father. Most like your father. So these pagans are the people that Peter is, is suggesting to us we need to engage with. These are the people that we need to involve ourselves with. He says, live such good lives among them that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and what? Glorify God. What does that mean? That means these very ones that were not glorifying God, these very ones that were not giving thanks to God, all of a sudden, because of something you and I are doing, start to glorify God. What Peter's opening the door up for is he's saying this. You can change the world. You can go into the world and be a part of changing it. And it's in the tradition of Jesus looking at the church and saying, you guys are light and you're salt. What he's suggesting to us is that we can go into the world and make it different. We, we shouldn't be afraid of darkness. In fact, we should be the kind of people when we understand who we are, should say, Lord, send me to the darkness. When, when you see that part of the office that's kind of dark, that little segment of the business you're involved with is kind of dark, you say, oh, Lord, don't send me over there because that Joe, he's dark. We should be saying, God, send me to Joe, he's dark. Why? Because you're light and light wins over dark. Light dispels, you shouldn't be freaked out of darkness. You shouldn't want to hide at darkness. You should engage. When, you know, when 2000 hit and everybody was talking about, you know, uh, the, there was a bunch of Christians talking about, you know, we just need to get our stuff because the world's going to be falling apart. Let's just get our stuff and plant up, get a bunch of food and hide it and get in the woods. I knew people that actually bought places and stored a bunch of stuff in the woods and got guns and stuff. And I said, you know, are you insane? I mean, what do you think? If, if everything falls apart, you know what the Christians do? We engage with everything, with everyone where their lives are falling apart. We're supposed to be involved with them. If everybody suffers, we suffer with them. We show them how to suffer well. With hope. We're not supposed to hide. We're supposed to run at it. And if something's rotten, we should say, send me to the rotten. I volunteer for the rot. Why? Because we're salt. Salt prevents any further rot. Not only that, it starts making stuff taste better. So what, 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 what Peter is telling us, he's saying, listen, you get in on this good life, and he's going to describe what he means here. He said, what will happen is, is, is that you, these people that are accusing you of doing wrong, they'll actually see your good deeds, and they'll start glorifying God. They'll start changing. And then he goes on, and he iterates what I would suggest is a three 
pronged strategy with three S's attached. And the three S's are, number one, he's suggesting that Christians need to learn how to submit. He's suggesting, number two, that Christians need to learn how to surrender as an appropriate surrender. And number three, that Christians need to learn how to suffer. Submission, surrender, and suffering. Very counterintuitive for the American mindset. Right? Oh, in fact, it's so counterintuitive that I will not try to convince you this will make sense. <laughs> You're just going to have to listen to Peter, his claim of God's power being released in this kind of context. And so he starts to dig into it. He tells us first in verse 13, submit, there's our first S, submit, he says, to yourselves to the, for the Lord's sake to every human authority. This is very interesting. Because what Peter is telling us is that we're to rank ourselves. Submission, the actual word, hupotasso, uh, is the essence of the word. It means, it's Greek, it means to rank yourself under. To try when you walk into a room, everybody that's there, they have a sphere. They have a little mini kingdom sphere. Influence that they have. And what Peter is saying is, don't violate spheres. Human contrived spheres. When you walk in, look for ways to submit. Look for ways to honor. Look for ways to defer to people that you encounter. What, what, he, what he's really suggesting here is basically uh, Jesus' command to the Christians, uh, to, the, or to his followers, to say, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's, and render unto God's what is God's. You need to learn to render unto Caesar. So when you walk into an office and there's a boss there or a manager there, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Look for ways. You walk into an area in a PTA meeting, you may have a PTA president that you think has the wrong agenda, but that PTA president has a realm that you should respect. You don't necessarily agree with them. You don't necessarily vote with them. But you must find ways to defer and honor their sphere. If you walk on, a, on an airplane, you're going to run into flight attendants. Submit to them. If you run into other parents who don't parent like you, you've got to recognize they have a parental sphere. You may not agree with them. You may even challenge them. But you must defer to them. You must respect them. And in that sense, you submit to them. Or it might be a, a, the occasional rude Starbucks barista who, you know, you do not want to tick off a barista. Listen, they're making your drink. What Peter's saying is, we're called to honor what belongs to the realm of men. Now, that doesn't mean they're your ultimate authorities. Remember, we're foreigners, we're exiles here. We're doing this, he says in this text, for the Lord's sake. We're not doing it for them. We're not doing it because we're afraid of them. We're citizens of another place. We're exiles here. We're, we're, we, we take our orders from another dimension. We're submitting, we're honoring these people because our Lord asks us to do that. Now, I get and you get that the word submission is a pretty pejorative word in the American context. We see it kind of as slavery. We kind of pride ourselves in equality of opinion, you know, and a generalized fairness and respect for everyone's right to disagree and protest, that kind of idea. And yet, submission is antithetical to that, and it's our calling. Now, don't misunderstand me. Submitting to people does not mean that you obey them. 
It doesn't. You remember that they submitted to the authorities in the book of Acts, and the authorities said to them, don't preach anymore. And they said, well, what are we going to do, obey you versus God? No, we have to obey God. They still submitted to the rights of the authority to beat them, the rights of the authority to, to deal with them, but they didn't obey. See, sometimes when we, we walk in and we think about submission, we got to understand we're not submitting to them because we're trying to obey them. We're submitting to them simply to honor them, to recognize that they have a voice that should be honored, that God wants us to recognize that. God honors the right of people to disagree with him. God honors the right of people to go into eternity without him. He honors that right. We must mirror honor to everyone. And so he goes on in verse 15. The reason we're doing this, this is God's will that by doing good, the good we're doing is submitting. Why? Because that submission, that honoring, ends up silencing, verse 15, the ignorant talk of the foolish. What he's saying is, you know, when these people, these pagans, and Peter claims this, the pagans watch us. And they're watching us in the God house. They're watching us do the God things. We look like strangers and aliens. They start a lot of times attacking us because they don't understand us if we live out a holy life. And he said, when you don't, fight back. But instead, you honor them. And you find ways to submit to them. It throws them on their back foot. They can't understand why. It, it silences their talk. And they're getting in a pause because God's fixing to do something with them through this action. Peter is showing his cards here. He's basically saying that Christians are to affect the culture in which we live. That we're to influence it for good. That we're bringing God's rule to bear. His kingdom. The kingdom doesn't look like normal ruling of aggressiveness. It, it, it looks like submission and surrender and suffering is what he's going to tell us. And then he says in verse 16, live as free people. <laughs> Do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil, but live as God's slaves. Live as free people. Yet he's calling us to submit. It sounds counterintuitive. Live. But what he's saying is, you're not really slaves of people. You're slaves of God. And, and, and what's happening here is that what you have to understand is in your heart, because you're, you're a slave of God, your submission is really just kind of a, an expression of that slavery. You're not slaves of them. You're not following them. You're not submitting to them per se. You're doing that as unto the Lord. And in that context, it's almost like you're, it's like, almost like you're an undercover person, like an undercover cop or an undercover CIA person. Right, and you're and you're doing. Oh, this is a horrible throwback, uh, but you know, I'm too old. Uh, kindergarten cop, <laughs> right? 1990, Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? He's 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 uh, he's a kindergarten teacher. He's not a kindergarten. He isn't. He's not. He is. He's not. Yeah, that's the whole story. He is. He's not. So he's in this kindergarten teaching, trying to get all the parents to believe it, all the kids to believe it. He's a kid, but he's really there for something else. He's trying to bust up this criminal ring, right? As it. So this kindergarten teacher thing's a cover. See, what if you kindergarten teachers are actually, it's just a cover? What if you nurses and, and, and uh, 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 Cox cable workers, what if you guys are all just undercover? The real reason you're engaged in the world is that you're representing God and that you're his slave. But you're using these places in which you work and the submission of your heart and the way you address with people, you're using, it as a, you're using that as a cover for what you're really after. What you're really after is bringing God to bear in the world. And verse 17, show proper respect for everybody. Love your fellow believers. Fear God, not people. Honor the emperor. And then he drills even further. Verse 18, slaves in reverent fear of God, not fear of people, submit, there's our first S again, 
Submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, which is even hard that, but also to those who are harsh. This is not a good thought. The word harsh there literally means bent. It means corrupt. The Latin phrase that word that Augustine always used was incurvatus. It meant this twistedness. So that you can't be upright. You can't love uprightly. You can't think uprightly. You can't treat people uprightly. You're just always bent. And what that means is you have this trajectory of self. You're loving but not others yourself. You're thinking not others yourself. It's that kind of circular bent. It's like wicker wood. That's where we get the word wicked. Wicked. Wicked means twisted. And so Peter is saying... Don't just submit to the people that you really enjoy, that are fair, that are honest, that are good. Submit even to the ones who are harsh, who are incarnatized. I love that word, incarnatized. <laughs> word, isn't it? <laughs> but watch what he says. He says, for this is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering. Watch it. Because you're conscious of God. So he's saying you're submitting, but it's because you're conscious of God. That's the S, surrender. He said you're submitting because you're really surrendered. You're submitting in this context, but your eye is over here because you're surrendered to your Father, to Almighty God. We are not surrendering to human beings. We are simply surrendered to God. And in that context, we recognize we're on a mission as we submit. And then verse 20. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it. But if you suffer, there's our last S. We have submission, we have surrender, and then we have suffer. What is suffering? It's when you submit and you surrender and you hang in there. Over time, you start to suffer. Peter says, don't run from it. Peter says, run at it. Why? He's basically suggesting that when you've been misused or there's some injustice, even though it's natural to retaliate and not suffer, it's like the slap. You get somebody slaps you on the face, and dude, I don't know about you, but there's something in me that wants to slap them back. You know what I'm saying? It just feels right. I mean, that's why I love the eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You know, go ahead and knock on my eye. It's okay. Come here. I get to knock out your eye. Just something soothing about that in my spirit, man. And then Jesus comes along and ruins it. He is out to ruin your life. Give you a new one, it's better, but still it ruins the old one. But there's something about it when you get slapped and that sting is there. There's something viscerally that arises in you that wants to say, no, stop it. Don't you dare slap me again. You want, if you cause me something, I'm going to utter threats, right? You insult me, well, listen to this, your mama. <laughs> Right? But Peter's saying, don't go there. When you've been insulted, when you've been hurt, when somebody's done injustice, you don't go there. It's like what Jesus said. He said, don't resist evil people. If someone slaps you on the face, what do you do? Don't respond out of that place. Don't respond out of that sting. Don't respond out of that hurt. Don't respond out of that injustice. Turn, turn your cheek. Lean into this from another place. You're double-realmed people. You don't just belong to this world. Respond from wholeness. Look to God. 
You submit to even the slap and you look to God in surrender. And as you're suffering, you're setting up something to happen is what Peter's suggesting. You're setting up something that's going to silence the mouths of the pagans and it's going to cause them to end up glorifying God. In other words, God's going to mug them. He actually says in this text, in verse 19, for it is commendable. Everybody say commendable. It is commendable if you bear up under the pain of unjust suffering because you're conscious of God. There's that, again, surrender. But if you suffer, verse 20, for doing what is good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. You know what the word commendable is actually, what the word actually is? It's a Greek word, charis. And many of you will recognize that word. It's the word for grace. What Peter is saying is, when you are willing to submit while you surrender to God, and you hang in there, even if you're suffering, this is commendable. In other words, grace will dawn. Charis will come to bear. Why is that so important? Because charis changes the world. Grace, Paul said, I am what I am by the Grace of God. In other words, the only reason we can be different is because of grace. So what we're doing is when we don't react with the slap and we submit and we sur- surrender to God and we suffer, we're opening the door for God to come. That's why Paul said in Romans 12, don't take your own revenge, my brothers, but leave room for God to get involved. Why? Because God will mug them. Every one of you that have crossed the threshold of faith have been mugged by God. You know it. We're all have God-mugging stories. It's the promise of God's grace and the promise of transformation. Then Peter goes for the kill shot. He says, to this you were called, in verse 21, because Christ suffered. Everybody say suffer. Don't anybody say suffer. (laughs) Because Christ suffered for you. This is... To this you were called. Dude, we do not like this, particularly as Americans. We, we want God to just bless us. We, you know, just we just want God to just make things better, right? I mean, I mean after all, in our, in our declaration, I mean, in our, in our very foundational documents, we have the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that's what we are. That's our culture. And in the state of California, you don't only have the right of the pursuit of happiness, it guarantees you happiness. It's the only state constitution that guarantees you happiness. So we're oriented in our country. God wants us happy. God wants me happy, right? I get to be happy, right? Well, bad, bad news. To this you were called. You know, look at the disciples, you know. They're coming to Jesus saying, oh, no, am I going to be in charge of the kingdom? When, <clears throat> When, when this kind of finishes up, I, do I get to be in charge? Do I get to sit in your right hand? When you look at are we going to take, take some, take, you know, take some names here and kick some people around? <laughs> you know what Jesus said? Here's the vision: you're going to die. <laughs> what? Okay. Here's the vision: you're going to die. They're going to cut your head off. They're going to hang you upside down. They're going to boil you in oil. Okay? This was the vision. 
is so different. In our minds, we think, well, God is here to make my life better. What if God is here to use, to invite you to be used as a vessel to change the world? And what if that way to change the world involves submission, surrender, and suffering? Because Peter says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow his steps. And in just a second, we'll see the steps. We'll see Jesus submitted, Jesus surrendered, and Jesus suffered. And as he submitted and surrendered and suffered, it opened the door for God to change people, for God to mug the world. And even though Jesus' actions were global, they were cosmic, they were eternal for all time. What we do doesn't have that kind of impact, but it does have an impact. And in our individual lives, as we meet those little pagans, those little nasty pagans, that, that when, we, when we engage with them and we submit in our little mini step and we surrender to God in our little mini step and we, we, we suffer in our little mini step, it opens the door for grace to come and God mugs these ones on individuals one-on-one life by life because we get to participate in the cross we don't add redemption we communicate redemption and sometimes when you communicate redemption you have to suffer so we see Jesus and in verse 22 it says he committed no sin no deceit was found in his mouth so he did nothing to warrant being mistreated but when they hurled in verse 23 their insults at him He didn't retaliate. When they slapped him, he didn't respond in kind. He didn't go there. He could have. It was clear he could have called the legions of angels and just wiped them all out. But instead of retaliating, he turned the other cheek and he said, Father, they know not what they do. When he was insulted, he didn't bring the insults back. He let them. When he suffered, he uttered no threats. He submitted to their rejection. And then it says what he did instead in the second part of the verse is he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. So he submitted because he surrendered. And as he surrendered in verse 24, it says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He suffered to death. So he submitted, he surrendered, and he suffered. Why? Why? So that we verse 24, might be mugged. That we would die to our sins and live for righteousness by his wounds we have been healed. We used to be like the sheep going astray, but now we've returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. The reason that we can return, the reason that we're non-pagan, the reason that we actually cross the threshold of faith is because something Jesus did opened the door for God to transform us. That's true for every soul in the world, but getting it out to people communicating it to see what if the gospel is more than a message what if it's you extending the actions of christ to the world what if paul was right when he said in colossians he said i make up for that which lacks in christ's afflictions he's not talking about redemption he's talking about somehow as he reached out to the body of christ and reached out to the world he had to suffer to bring the message and what if that pathway of surrender and suffering and submission is the pathway we have to act out if we're going to reach people outside of faith some people respond to a message but what if a lot of people will never respond until someone dares to live out 
the walk of Jesus. And then he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, he says, Wives, in the same way as who? The slaves. In the same way as who? As Jesus. Submit yourselves to your own husband. There's that submission. So that if anyone don't believe the word, they can be won over. See, the whole purpose of this letter is he say, listen, you can win over people who are not open to God. You can win them over. How? By this pathway that Jesus had. Here's, a, here's a, just a simple example of it in Scripture. Stephen. He's the guy that was martyred, Acts chapter 7. And uh, he's preaching to the, to the Jews in Jerusalem, and there had to be some friends in there that he knew. And as he's preaching, they're getting madder and madder and madder. I've had people get mad at me, but these guys were gnashing at their teeth. I never had them gnash. They're gnashing their teeth. They're so ticked off. And, uh, and they finally rushed him, and they grabbed him. They took him outside the city, and they started throwing stones at him. Now, there's no evidence that Stephen started picking the stones back up and throwing them back, saying, sinners, you're going to hell. You know how some people get? They get to get mad at pagans. No, getting mad at pagans doesn't help anything. I can't take that this is going on in America. Well, why don't you just shut up? Yeah. Unless you want to be more American than Christian. Maybe our reaction is never to be angry. Maybe our reaction is to say, you know, people can be people. We can't expect them to have the right kind of thinking if they don't have the right kind of understanding. There's a gal I knew in Wisconsin. She really rabid, a pro-lifer. And as I got to know her, I mean, she was really rabid. She was a real smart, intelligent woman, but she was the meanest. This was back in the days when they used to do more picketing and stuff and <laughs> yelling at each other across lines. She was a yeller, man. She was just so mean. And a nice lady, but mean as a hornet. And I remember, I guess I got to know her. I said, how come you're so mean? Well, you know, I didn't say that first. I said, I asked her to tell me her story. We were talking, knew her over a period of time. She used to go to our church. and Found out that she used to be in the other side of the line. Pro-choice, aggressively, meanly, hateful language against the pro-life people. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean you used to be really mean and nasty over on this side of the line? She said, yeah, I fought for it. For pro-choice. I said, and then now you're fighting for pro-life? Yeah! I said, well, what changed? She said, well, I came to Christ. And I began to see what was right. And realized, you know, that there was more to it than what I had been seeing. I said, so let me get this straight. So it took, you used to be on this side of the camp, and it took a revelation from God and a touch of his spirit in your heart to get you over here. Well, why are you expecting these people over here to get it because you're yelling at them? Maybe it's going to take a revelation from God and a touch of the Spirit for them to come onto your side. Why are you being so mean? It's not going to work. Sidebar, come back. Okay. Stephen. So Stephen doesn't throw back the stones. He submits to their right to stone him. And then it says that he's looking to heaven. He's surrendering to God. And as he's surrendering to God, he sees Jesus and he tells God, he said, God, don't lay this... They don't, don't lay this to their charge. Just, you know, it's okay. And, and, and as the stones were pummeling him and he was dying, he suffered. He suffered to the point of death. So he submitted, he surrendered, and he suffered. And then interestingly, the story parenthetically says that they took the garments of the witnesses, the ones who were giving witness to what had happened, and they laid them to the instigator's feet, the one who had instigated this event. His name was Saul. 
And they laid the garments at his feet. Two chapters later, Saul is rallying, trying to kill more Christians, as many as he can. He gets a bunch of letters from Jerusalem. He's on his way to Damascus to murder more Christians. He's not giving glory to God in the Christ way. He's outside. He's wandering like a shepherd without a, she- a sheep without a shepherd. And all of a sudden, as he's outside of Damascus, he, he gets mugged. God mugs him. He's on the ground. He's saying, what up? And Jesus is going, why are you messing with me? He said, who are you I'm messing with? He said, I'm Jesus. What? He goes. <laughs> and God turns this horrible pagan-like, in terms of Christ anyway, non-glorifying God, harsh person, into the great apostle Paul, who is the greatest advocate for the church and wrote a third of the New Testament. A guy that was the most horrible became the most wonderful. How come? Was that just God sovereignly? Bing! If it was just God sovereignly doing it, why doesn't he just do it with all of us and let's get on with it? What if, what if God was looking for someone to say, would you be willing to step into a setting where you need to submit? And instead of reacting when you get the sting, you look to another place and you surrender to me. And in that context, you're willing to stay there and suffer even to the point of death because I got to reach this guy who's not being reached. He's not picking up the tracks. He's not watching TVN. He's not going to church. So would you, let, would you be a vessel for me? Are you, are you willing to submit? Are you willing to follow the calling of Jesus that he said before you to submit, to surrender, and to suffer so that he can be done with his sin and instead of wandering off, he can be brought back to the shepherd of his soul? Are you willing? And Stephen said, yes. There's a lot of people through history that had to say yes to martyrdom. And if you follow church history, you realize that the blood of the martyrs was always the way that a country or a region was prepared for the gospel. Why? Wasn't Jesus enough? His sacrifice enough? Sure it was. Enough to win it, but not enough to engage it. The church is the body of Christ. The church is a Eucharistic people. When we come and we see the body broken and the cup with his blood, we're supposed to absorb that meal into our system, but we're also supposed to be absorbed into it. Then we realize when we leave here, as we participate in his sacrifice, when we leave here, we can go out and on our jobs and in our homes and in our friendships and in our culture, we are willing for our bodies to be broken on some level, for our blood to be shed on some level. Most of us won't ever be martyrs, but on some level, we must be willing to respect and honor and celebrate people and realize that the message of life isn't just words. That's why St. Francis of Assisi said, always preach the gospel. Sometimes use words. You're called. I'm called. What if there are people in your world right now that God is saying, I would love, I would love if if you'd let me use you to arrest them, to help me mug them. But know what you were praying? Lord, that person's kind of mean. Can you get me in a different job where I'm not around anybody that's mean? That neighbor, you know I hate that neighbor. 
particularly because the neighbor's dog is always doing his business in my yard. Would you just get rid of that neighbor somehow? Get me in a better neighborhood, Lord. Oh, thank you for answering my prayer. Being a Christian is so wonderful. 